0: Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect our ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and this episode features Dr. Wade Worthen, professor of biology at Furman University. As a community ecologist, he uses insect communities as model systems. His views on biodiversity are important and enlightening. For more information, check out futurefrogmen.org and look for us on social
1: media at Future Frogmen. Let's get into it. Wade, although we've been corresponding on and off for a year or so, we only recently actually met, at least virtually via Zoom. Thanks for joining us to share information about your interesting career and your areas of study. As you know, Future Frogman is focused on Earth's aquatic environments. And that means not just the ocean, that also means freshwater environments. I know you've done a lot of work around freshwater. So I want to welcome you, Wade. And uh, to get started, can you tell us uh, about your background and how you found the path that you are on.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Richard. First, I wanted to thank you and future Frogman for having me. Uh, It's great to talk with you and to be provided this platform to connect with other people interested in preserving this unique and beautiful environment that we have. I grew up outside of Boston in a small town, Sudbury, Massachusetts, was always interested in the outdoors. And I played a lot of sports grew up across from uh, woodland, which is now an extensive development. But uh, me and my buddies would always go over there and climb trees and turn rocks and just play in the woods. And my dad was an avid hunter, so we would go up to Vermont every year and hunt with my cousins. But being interested in nature from an early age, but living in the suburbs, the only kind of professional that I interacted with on a regular basis that I recognized as a biologist was my physician. And so I think like a lot of budding or curious naturalists, uh, we just kind of gravitate towards medicine because that's where our role models are in suburbia. It really wasn't until I went to Bucknell as an undergraduate and started taking some classes in ecology that I saw that, uh, boy, they were professional ecologists that were doing just what I wanted to do and just what I loved. So I was lucky to get involved in an undergraduate research project with Warren Abrahamson studying. A very interesting system. the flies that parasitize goldenrods and cause the formation of these round galls on goldenrod stems and those flies are subsequently parasitized by wasps. So it's a very interesting kind of relationship that involves a predatory wasp, a herbivorous fly, and then the plant. So that was just a great experience and after and my career as an undergraduate, uh, I went to Rutgers in e- ecology, and I really realized that, uh, a kind of small liberal arts environment was just the place I wanted to be, uh, provided a perfect blend for me of teaching, which I love, but also getting students involved in research and the, the really discipline of being a professional biologist. So it, it, I wouldn't say it was a a tortuous path. It was a pretty straight path, Uh, maybe just a narrowing from someone who was kind of generally interested in biology and then became more focused on ecology as things went along.
1: So before we go any further, uh, I I think I get it, but uh, just to help us out, what do you mean when you say parasitized?
0: Oh, well, it's a very interesting system, so a fly, flies around and lays its egg on the tip of a goldenrod plant and that maggot starts chewing on that growing tip of the plant. And actually there are chemicals in the saliva that stimulate the growth of stem tissue that then surrounds that maggot in a little ball. So if you walk through a field and you're looking at at goldenrod shoots, you'll see about a, a golf ball sized ball growing on the stems of the goldenrod plants. And this actually helps the plant too because it sequesters that maggot within that ball and the growing tip of the plant can continue to grow and that's where the flowers are produced. So by sequestering that maggot in that ball gall, the plant is still able to reproduce later. But there's a little wasp that flies around looking for these ball galls. And they insert their stinger, which is really just a modified egg-laying tube. They insert that into the gall and they have tactile receptors at the tip of that stinger and they're feeling around inside that gall. And when they find the maggot, the fly maggot, they lay their own egg on that fly maggot. And that wasp egg hatches, and the wasp larva consumes the fly maggot inside that ball gall. And the following spring, you have a wasp emerging instead of a fly. And the evolutionary relationships in this system are such, as you would suspect, this wasp is actually very tiny and it's most successful on small galls, where there's a smaller volume for it to explore and it has a higher probability of finding that little maggot on the inside. Large galls and the flies that induce large gall formation are less susceptible to parasitism by the wasp, but the galls are a target for birds as well and birds can see larger galls more readily than small ones and they then peck at the gall and they learn that there's a tasty little maggot inside so it's a very interesting system where there's what's called stabilizing selection for gall size and the flies that induce medium-sized galls succeed best are most likely to complete development because the flies that induce small galls tend to be parasitized by the wasps, but the flies that induce large galls are parasitized or consumed, preyed upon by birds.
1: Okay, well, that's something I I certainly did not know. (laughs) Uh, Now, you are down south at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm actually sitting up here in Connecticut and uh, we have, it seems, an abundance of goldenrod this year. Uh, when you talk about the goldenrod, are, would you generally be speaking about, say, nationwide or even around the world? Well,
0: uh, my guess same, would be same. that um, they're probably parasitized around the world, but probably by different species of gall fly. Now, insects are just so numerous; and they comprise 50% of the animal species, and know, 30% of all species on earth, that most plants are preyed upon by one insect or another, and oftentimes the plants that are closely related are preyed upon by insects in different parts of the world that have co-evolved with those plants and are thus closely related as well. So if you were to go out, if you were to go outside uh, this time of year, you'd certainly see some ball galls on those stems.
1: I will go look for that after, after our visit today, <laughs> uh, it sounds very <laughs> interesting. So um, I mentioned you're at Furman, uh, actually uh, I'm a graduate of Furman, great school in Greenville, South Carolina, and you are a professor of biology, and I understand that uh, you are, and you alluded to this, uh, I believe, but you're, you're a community ecologist. Can you explain uh, what ecology is and also what is meant by community? So a, a community ecologist.
0: So ecology is defined as the scientific study of the distribution and abundance of organisms. It's a wordy way to say, why do living things live where they do? Why does a particular species have this particular distribution and live in this particular place? And how does it interact with the environment? Because it's those interactions with the environment, both the non-living environment, like the temperature and moisture and precipitation, but then also the other species that live in that area that determine whether that's a good place or a bad place for that species to live. So that's kind of the broad brush approach of ecology, but ecologists can study those interactions at several different scales. So we could study at an individual level and look at individuals of one species and see how they tolerate different, let's say if we're dealing with an aquatic organism, different water temperatures. Then we could deal at the populational level and see, gee, as a consequence of the response of this particular species to temperature, how does that affect their ability to reproduce and the ability of that population to grow? Individuals may be able to tolerate warm temperatures, but they may not be able to reproduce, and thus the population is not going to be able to maintain itself. If we go to a larger scale and we deal with communities, as I do, we're interested not just in the response of single species, but rather the responses of all the species that live in a particular area. Then at the largest scale of ecosystems, we're interested in how not only the species that live in an area interact, but also how those dynamics are affected by changes in those non-living variables like temperature and precipitation and climate change and so forth. So as a community ecologist, uh, I'm interested in really how the interactions between species determine how many species can live in a particular area. Do you have a community that's just dominated by one particular species? Well, why is that? And why is it that in another place, you have extraordinarily high diversity and lots of species that are apparently coexisting together? And now, with the, the, you know, the fact that we're confronting the sixth major mass extinction event in the planet's history, you know, understanding these mechanisms that promote coexistence and promote diversity become very important as we attempt to manage this biodiversity.
1: Yeah, now when I I hear this uh this term that is commonly being used and unfortunately true, the mass extinction, can you uh can you help us understand that because uh, at a at a at a layman's level one could think incorrectly hopefully that that means all creatures will be extinct, but uh there 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 is a a massive amount of extinction going on with uh thousands of species of all types can you uh shed some light on that
0: sure when we use that term mass extinction uh we're really it's really a comparative index so there is a background extinction rate that can be measured in the fossil record so We look at the number of species of, let's say, snails in a given strata. And then we look and see how many of them are lost in the next stratum that's more recent. From that, we can calculate the percentage of species that have gone extinct. And we can do this for different groups of organisms. And we can do it for different time periods. And so there is an average background rate of extinction which has been punctuated over the course of Earth history by these cataclysmic drops in species number, what we call mass extinction events, where as opposed to maybe a 1% extinction rate per million years, we see that in the span of a million years or even less, 95% of the species go extinct the two greatest mass extinction events, delineate the major eras in the history of kind of macroscopic life on our planet. So when we think about animal evolution and we think about, well, the first animals, you know, like trilobites and those marine organisms like that, uh, and then we think about animals and the dinosaurs, and then we think about the great age of mammals, what we're thinking about are these three big eras that are distinguished as the Paleozoic era, old animal life, the Mesozoic era, middle animal life when the dinosaurs dominated, and then Cenozoic era, recent animal life. And the reason they created those divisions was there were major changes in the types of fossils you see. So 250 million years ago, which is where we draw the line between the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic, there was an abrupt decline in the number of species that were present. There was a mass extinction event, and lots of those Paleozoic animals, including the last of the trilobites, went extinct. And now we're able to correlate those mass extinction events when... 95%, 75% of species go extinct with environmental factors that were occurring at those times. So actually 250 million years ago, there was a period of just dramatic volcanic activity, as well as possibly some meteorites hitting the surface of the earth as well. And with all of that ash and dust and carbon dioxide being thrown up into the atmosphere, the CO2 dissolved in ocean waters, creating carbonic acids, which acidified the oceans. And like I said, 95% of marine organisms went extinct. Well, that's what delineates the Paleozoic from the Mesozoic era. The Mesozoic and the Cenozoic are delineated 65 million years ago by another mass extinction event, which, of course, we're more familiar with because it wiped out the dinosaurs. But that was due to a meteorite impacting the Earth just off the Yucatan Peninsula, throwing up, you know, causing fires and throwing up huge amounts of sediment into the air, which cut off photosynthesis and resulted in what we call an ecological winter where, you know, there just plants died and the animals that ate them died. And just a few managed to kind of scrape through and make it. And we're lucky that the mammals were one such group. So these mass extinction events are often tied. We've been able to tie them to large scale changes in the environment. And right now, we're experiencing another mass extinction event. And the way we know that is that the rate of extinction is a thousand times higher than that background rate. And some of the same forces are at work. We're increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And as I mentioned before, just like happened at the end of the Paleozoic, that CO2 is dissolving in the ocean creating carbonic acids, increasing the acidity of the ocean. And, you know, the ocean is usually just this really stable place in terms of temperature and chemistry because it's so huge and water as an environment, uh, it has a high... Uh, kind of thermal inertia, it takes a large change in energy to change the temperature of water, particularly such a large volume as the ocean. So animals living in a marine environment really haven't, many of them haven't adapted a lot of uh, kind of tolerance to changing conditions because the conditions haven't changed there for them. They've never had to adapt to, say, seasonality, like terrestrial animals in the temperate zone do. Now when these changes occur, they're sensitive to them. So uh, probably many of your listeners have read recently uh, that 50% of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef have been lost in the last 20 years. It's a major die-off. Half the corals on the largest Coral ecosystem on the planet have died in the last 20 years, they're just not able to tolerate the rate of change to the environment that we're causing as a consequence of adding CO2 to the atmosphere. So that's that's what we're looking at. We are, in fact, causing this mass extinction event, first through climate change, but also simply as a consequence of reducing available habitat. You know, our human population was just uh one billion in 1860, just a billion people on the planet. And in over a hundred in only 150 years, 160 years, we've increased sevenfold, well over seven and a half billion now. And What we've done is to change habitats that were used by other species into habitats that just we use. And we've converted a lot of the surface of the earth to agricultural land so we can grow the food that supports that huge population. As a consequence, there's just not enough habitat to support all of the other species anymore. So it's really no surprise that there's not enough room and not enough food to support the extraordinary diversity that existed on this planet even 150 years ago.
1: Yeah, it's it's staggering. Well, I'm glad you talked about the ocean. And uh, I, I know you have strong thoughts about biodiversity. And I think uh, we definitely want to come back to that. And it's a theme throughout our, our conversation, really. But. Since you're talking about the ocean, I wanted to uh, also ask you, we spoke the other day and you were talking about how humans control approximately 50% of the freshwater on the planet. And you indicated to me, you know, how it's used for, how much is used for industry and human use and, and then talked about freshwater intrusion into estuaries. I wonder if you could review that for our listeners.
0: Sure, absolutely. It's probably one of the less obvious effects that we're having on the planet. It's a lot more obvious when we cut down a forest. Uh, It's a lot more obvious when we can see the fires and the smoke rising from the Amazon basin and satellite images. But, you know, the little ribbon of water that is a river, well, it, it looks like it's still there. So what effect are we having? But actually, we're having a nearly as dramatic effect on freshwater and estuarine environments as on any other environment on the planet. We need, as I've already mentioned, we've transformed huge areas of landscape to agriculture. And there's something plants need besides soil and sunlight to grow, and that's water. So we have dammed rivers and created reservoirs so that we can trap that water before it runs to the ocean and pump it out of those reservoirs and spray it over the surface of our farmland. So to this point, we are actually using 50% of the fresh water on our planet. We're controlling it. And, you know, well, just like with terrestrial habitats, as I just mentioned, well, What about all the other organisms that need that water to survive? Well, they've only got half as much as they used to have. So that's gonna create a real pinch for them, and many of those species are going extinct. Well, what do we use that water for? Well, 70% of that water that we use, that we regulate, is used for agriculture, spread over the land to grow the food that we eat. 20% is used for industry, because water is such an important solvent, it's the universal solvent, and so lots of things dissolve in water, and we use it for chemical reactions and such, but we also use it because of that thermal stability I mentioned before. It's a great coolant, takes a large change in energy to change its temperature, so you can run it through a nuclear power plant and you can use it to, you know, cool those turbines and also generate the steam to turn those turbines and cool those rods that are decaying in those power plants. So only about 10% is used for personal use, for drinking water and, you know, the water that runs through your home and the homes of other people and the water that, folks go to wells to carry back to their homes. So most of it's used for agriculture. Now, the, the way that we trap that water, of course, is to build a dam and create a reservoir. And when that happens, that water isn't carried to the end of the river anymore. And in fact, many of the major river systems on our planet now run dry at certain times of the year that we're using all the water all the fresh water carried by that river system. Colorado River is an excellent example. Literally use all the water in the Colorado most years. And what happens then in an estuary, if you don't have all that fresh water flowing down from a river, pushing that salt water out, well, that salt water moves up into that estuary. And that increases the salinity dramatically in that estuary. That typically would have had an influx of fresh water lowering that salinity. And as I mentioned before, although the estuary happens to be an environment that does fluctuate dramatically in terms of salinity, and with you know tides moving in and out, nonetheless, without that freshwater intrusion, the salinities can be much higher than those estuarine organisms usually tolerate. And that can destroy this extraordinarily productive habitat. I mean, humans are a coastal species and we've always drawn food from the ocean, but also from those shallow water environments that are easier to access. So when we think of just some of the most productive habitats on our planet in terms of foodstuffs, uh, estuaries have to rank right up there. In, in fact, and when we think in terms of biological productivity, they only rank behind rainforests and coral reefs in terms of the amount of biomass produced per unit area per year. They are biological factories producing lots of tissue, many of which we consume, like clams and oysters and fish that we that we harvest. Just think of Chesapeake Bay and think of the economic dependencies that we have on the biological productivity of that estuary you can appreciate how important it is that the health of those systems be maintained and yet by drawing off fresh water we're really uh making those systems far more vulnerable to saltwater intrusion
1: and on top of that we're uh, adding fertilizer runoff and sewage and pollution other types of pollution, so it's uh, it's a wonder that these uh, bodies of water can uh, survive, and uh, you know, decades ago, some of them were in worse shape than they are now.
0: That's right, and uh, you know, it's, I, I like to bring up to my class that uh, there was a time when the environment was not seen as a political coin, that it was seen as something that everybody should appreciate and that, you know, it was the Nixon administration that enacted the Clean Water and Clear Air Act and the Endangered Species Act under political pressure from, from both sides because, you know, the Cuyahoga River was catching on fire and that's, <laughs> you don't like to see rivers catch on fire, but it does suggest, you know, that, that does highlight in the comment that you made about uh, pollution in freshwater systems as I'm sure you're aware, long ago the, uh, an interesting little uh, saying was, you know, dilution is the solution to pollution. So the idea was, well, gee, the ocean is just so vast that we can just dump our waste into this limitless volume of water and it'll become so dilute that it won't be toxic anymore. Unfortunately, people look at rivers the same way, probably because once you dump your trash in a river, it's carried downstream out of your view and it's not your problem anymore. But there's less water in a river. Dilution uh, is not the solution. As a consequence, many of our freshwater systems have been heavily impacted by chemical pollution in particular.
1: So, that, w- Wade, let's go over to... Uh an area that you've spent a lot of time and uh, passion on, these insect communities. As a community ecologist, uh, you've chosen to spend a lot of your focus on insect communities as your model systems. Can you tell us why, and and what observations you've made and what you've learned?
0: Uh, Well, of course I'd love to. (laughs) (laughs) So actually I got involved in insects as a model system in graduate school. And again, with my interest in kind of how interactions between species influence the diversity within that system, I came upon a model system that lent itself to manipulated experiments. And that was actually the fruit flies that lay their eggs on mushrooms in the woods. Now, most of us are familiar with the black-bellied dew lover, the little kind of common fruit fly that maybe some of us met in genetics class. But there are hundreds of fruit fly species which use mushrooms as their larval habitat. They lay their eggs on mushrooms and then the eggs, the larva rather, of these different species of fruit flies are tunneling through this mushroom competing for that food, interacting, and outcompeting one another, and also they're eaten by ants and beetles, so the predation can be important in regulating the diversity within that system as well. That was the model system that I, that I started with, and I was attracted to it because it was so easily manipulated. I could rear some of these fruit flies in the lab, I could then alter their densities within the lab, on mushrooms that I would buy from the store. I could introduce predators to the system as well. And some people wanna study the effects of competition among large herbivores on the Serengeti and look at predation by leopards and cheetah and lions. I wanted to keep all my fingers and toes, so I decided to look at fruit flies and beetles. From there, coming to Furman, I got involved with an interdisciplinary program, really the largest interdisciplinary study in Furman's history, looking at water quality in local streams. And the Earth and Environmental Science Department actually spearheaded this initiative. And they came to me and said, Wade, do you like working with bugs? You know, um, would you like to work with us on aquatic insects? The reason being that aquatic insects are often used what are called indicator species because some of them are very sensitive to changes in water quality, like the presence of those chemicals that I just made reference to. In particular, stoneflies and caddisflies and mayflies are very sensitive. So those three taxa and the diversity in those taxa, the number of kind of cumulative species within those three groups, is used as an indicator of good water quality. Those groups are very difficult taxonomically at the larval stage. And for someone just kind of getting into aquatic insects, I found dragonfly larvae to be a lot easier to work with. There weren't as many species, the larvae are much larger and uh, I could key things out to species with much greater confidence. And also, I had always been fascinated with dragonflies because they're just so beautiful, and they're also ecologically important as terrestrial insect predators as well. They form an important link, actually, between aquatic and terrestrial systems. It's been shown that in ponds that have a lot of fish that consume dragonfly larvae, that reduces the number of adult dragonflies then that metamorphose from that lake, and the number of insect pollinators is higher, and the rate of pollination on the vegetation that surrounds that pond is actually higher, because the insect pollinators are not getting eaten by dragonflies. So it's an interesting link. You might not think that, gee, the density of fish in a pond would influence the rate of pollination of stream-side vegetation but dragonflies make the link between those systems. So at any rate, I became interested in uh, dragonflies, and that system was just wonderful because the folks in the Earth Environmental Science Department were collecting all the chemistry data, and I would go out with uh, my biologist friends, and we would sample the living communities with seines with just nets. And uh, I would collect dragonfly samples, and he would collect fish samples, and then we could correlate the abundances and diversity within our communities with the chemical analyses being run by the chemists and the environmental scientists. And we found that there are indeed some dragonfly species that are a little more sensitive than others. Uh, Most of them, the community tends to be influenced more by physical characteristics in the environment, which humans are also impacting. You know, when you think of a nice little babbling brook, headwater stream, you think of lots of rocks and then, you know, a deep little pool and then another little riffle area with lots of rocks. But what happens when humans change the surrounding landscape is we end up increasing erosion. So, water flows more quickly into the streams off all the hardscape in the watershed, and with more water in that stream, it erodes the banks more violently, and all that extra sediment then gets deposited at the bottom of the stream. That's actually what tends to wipe out the stoneflies and the mayflies and the caddisflies, because they need high concentrations of oxygen and the water running over those babbling rocks ends up increasing the oxygen content. But dragonflies, although some are sensitive to those changes, some do better. One's called a common sand dragon, and it burrows into sandy sediments. So what ends up happening is you get a change in the community as a consequence of a change in the physical environment. You have a lot of species Where there's a rocky substrate, where there's a sandy substrate, you get communities dominated by these sand dragons that just do well in that habitat. So that's really uh, where my research uh, in dragonflies started and since then I've focused more on interactions among the adults and uh, have shown that around a pond the males will perch on stems of vegetation. And uh, boy, you know, dragonflies, different species can be really different and can vary in size tenfold. We have large dragonflies that weigh ten times what a small one would weigh. As you might suspect, there's a competitive imbalance for these perches. You know, they fight in battle. They're very uh, territorial and aggressive. And the large dragonflies end up winning battles for tall perches, displacing smaller dragonflies to progressively shorter perches. So this is a pattern that we often see in species that use similar resources and compete for those resources with one another, but coexist. And the way that species can coexist is through niche or resource partitioning. By using just this particular subset of resources, upon which they're particularly efficient, they can specialize and maintain a foothold in the community, and also allow other species that are specializing on other resources to be maintained within that community. So, more recently, uh, those are the patterns that I've uh, kind of teased out in that structure, the biodiversity in this community. The adults are partitioning perches, perching on different heights in a pattern that correlates with body size and maintaining biodiversity within the system.
1: Does perching on the lower areas put them at greater risk?
0: It does, actually. Um, Greater risk of predation from fish. So fish, like bass, will jump right out of the water and snatch dragonflies out of the air. And so this niche partitioning doesn't just occur really with respect to perching. They also fly at different heights as a consequence and are kind of feeding on midges and other small insects that are flying at particular heights. So the smaller ones are at a little higher rate of uh, or risk of predation from fish, but birds are a more significant Uh, predator on dragonflies. And actually, although the small ones might be more susceptible to predation because of their size, they might actually gain an advantage by flying so close to the water. It's kind of, there's a lot of uh, kind of similarities with with dog fighting between pilots. And you know, a pilot might fly close to the water because somebody coming in to dive, boy, they better have it just right, or they're going to bore in. So uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of similarities, and also a lot of similarities kind of in the aerodynamics uh, of their wing and, and how they fight, too. So um, predation probably plays a role, but I think it um, reinforces the likelihood that small species are gonna perch low because I think there's a greater risk from airborne predators than from
1: fish. I know in my backyard here in Connecticut, uh, particularly in the summertime, but uh, I think now we're in October, mid-October, and even now in the evening, I can see dragonflies uh, flying above the grass and they're obviously feeding. But the closest water, there's a river maybe 700, 800 yards away, would they be traveling from one of those bodies of water?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, And usually what will happen is uh, the females will tend to leave the stream and they'll forage in fields and stuff for a couple of weeks. And then when they've built up body mass and really laid down a lot of energy as fat, That they'll use for maximizing the number of eggs they can lay. Then they'll fly back to the stream and be mated and lay eggs. There are also some species that are migratory. So it, uh, and they use the Atlantic coast as a flyway, just like many birds do. So if you go to the beach, uh, really this time of year is good, is a pretty good time to go. And you'll often see very large dragonflies are called common green darners. They have a blue abdomen but a green thorax and they're a migratory species and they'll be flying south and they'll they'll go down to Florida and uh, turn over a generation down there and their children or grandchildren will fly up next spring as other insects start to emerge and the availability of food increases with
1: latitude. Yeah it's amazing what all these different species do. The, the whole migration phenomenon just blows my mind. You know hundreds and hundreds of miles right. if not thousands of miles. It's uh, for, for you know small and large creatures.
0: It is and it, it, it's one of the most fascinating things I think you know with elephants or wildebeest you can appreciate that well you know they're following the old members of the herd that know, who followed their grandparents that knew. But when you're talking about you know, monarchs or dragonflies or even birds who are hatching in one place, but they're gonna fly to a breeding ground somewhere else and they might be flying solo, like albatross, how do they know? All that we know is that selection works. The ones that do it reproduce and pass on whatever biological tendency there is to perform this behavior.
1: Would you, would you say that of the species you have studied, uh, the dragonfly is your greatest area of expertise?
0: Yes, I would say so now. Uh, they're just fascinating. The territoriality that we see in males It's really neat because it's linked with their reproductive morphology. Like most insects, and one interesting question for anyone interested in biodiversity is, why are there so many kinds of insects? What is it about insects that has encouraged their speciation, has caused them to break up into so many different kinds of species? Well, insects can become pretty well isolated, even on a small scale. And they're really tough, so when they get somewhere new, there's a pretty good chance they'll be able to make it because they have a real tough exoskeleton and they don't need much food. And most of them are very um, fecund, they can lay a lot of eggs, so you can establish a fairly large population fairly quickly, which is important because small populations have a higher probability of just bouncing to extinction. So establishing a a large population quickly is important. But another important element is probably that they have external genitalia, and it's an outgrowth of that hard exoskeleton. So the genitalia really have to fit, like lock and key, because there's very little give in these hard structures. So any small change in the structure of the genitalia between two populations, will probably prevent them from mating with members of another population. In dragonflies, we see this very specific, you know, coupling between the genitalia. But there are also some other interesting phenomena that are going on. In lots of insects, the females have a sac that stores sperm. And this is adaptive for organisms that might not encounter another member of their species (laughs) over the course of their short life. So for insects, you know, that might not bump into another potential mate, well, boy, you know, you better get it while the getting's good. So the females store sperm from previous copulations. Well, this has created a selective pressure on males, and the males have evolved a little spoon on their penis. And when they mate, they scoop out the sperm that the female might have from a previous copulation and insert their own. And the reason being is that the last, the last sperm into this sac is the first sperm out that's used when she fertilizes her eggs. So after this particular trick, then selection has favored males that defend that female. And so you'll see that if you go out to uh, the stream, oftentimes you'll see these dragonflies flying end to end, flying, their heads are pointing in the same direction, but the tail of the male is grabbing the female behind the head. She then has to reach her abdomen up and receive sperm from the male, and then they'll stay in tandem while she lays eggs, and this prevents other males from mating. So the territoriality that we see in males is really a mechanism for um, defending females that they mate with from other males, and really comes back to this very unusual kind of reproductive biology. It's just a nice example of how oftentimes many different aspects of an organism's biology are related in what might initially be kind of uh, mysterious ways.
1: I think you told me when you go to the stream or locations of study, you can recognize the dragonflies and you have numbers for them.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. The numbers are how I recognize. Yeah. 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 I can't say that's Joe over there, but I can say, Hey, that's number 66. So, uh, yeah. So I've been, uh, looking, you know, during this season of COVID, uh, I've been focusing on a local stream and just looking at patterns of territoriality and males over the course of the summer. And the males are really pretty wedded to a particular area and they'll stay there. And I've, I've captured single individuals over the like six, seven weeks, which is really unusual. Uh, most dragonflies, it's thought, will only live a couple of weeks on average, but uh, some of these guys are hanging out for six or seven weeks. And the females are moving up and down the stream a lot more regularly. It, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun to kind of focus on one area and get to really know it rather than kind of a typical approach of looking at different communities in different areas and trying to find out why those communities are different. Kind of been forced into just studying this one area and uh, it's been instructive as well.
1: Do you think that's uh, an experience you'll try to write about and possibly publish?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Because I've been uh, able to uh, GPS the locations of these dragonflies when I see them, and so I've got a very quantitative understanding of how much they move, and so that'll be interesting to look at.
1: Sure will. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So, uh, Let's talk for a a minute about uh, you've gone to Costa Rica and the Galapagos Islands with some Furman students. What were those experiences like?
0: Well, I have to say that the ability to travel to different habitats has been the the, uh, most exciting part of my career. The opportunity to visit a new spot and see Organisms they've never seen before. Things don't get more exciting than that. And for me, the rainforest is uh, is mecca. I mean, it's just I I just feel like every day you get up, you just feel like uh, even every hour walking down a trail, you just feel like you're when you turn a corner you could see something new. And, and darned if you don't usually see something new. <laughs> so it's just great. And actually, I have dived in Belize and the um, coral reefs there and in Australia as well. And I think that's, that's why I'm so passionate about my career is that I've been able to see this extraordinary diversity and the thought of losing it and the thought that generations in the future won't be able to experience it and won't be inspired by it is, uh, is catastrophic.
1: Yeah, I imagine when you walk those uh, paths in the uh, rainforest or coral reefs, you have a unique advantage because you understand, uh, it, you you see the beauty, uh, but you uh, and you appreciate the beauty, but you also have the scientific knowledge. So that that is a special added dimension. It is. It,
0: it's it's a lot of fun to be able to see the animals that you know the stories about. Oh, you know, there's a clownfish living in anemone and oh, gee, I wonder, you know, if it's a juvenile clownfish, it's male, and they turn into females when they're mature. And where's the little school, you know, that consists uh, largely of males and then just one dominant female? So it is, it's really neat to see the stories come to life that, you know, I've been studying for my whole life.
1: And Belize, that's the second largest barrier reef in the world, second to Australia's. And uh, I was there back in the 70s with Cousteau diving, and uh, was there several years ago. Uh, I took my family there, and the reef was still extraordinarily beautiful. I I think some areas might be uh, in jeopardy, but it's a gigantic reef, and uh, I think Belize is doing what I understand to be a nice job uh, conserving it. So uh, it's just a real special place. Now, one topic I wanted to make sure we we talked about, you've talked about biodiversity throughout, and I think that is uh, really the theme of our conversation. You feel strongly about how critical that is, but I'd like you to just comment. Uh, I know you you view it as a living planet and uh, the dangers of too much human impact. Uh, could you just talk about uh, the living planet and, and how important biodiversity is?
0: I kind of frame it like this. There are so many people that are interested in saving the environment. You know, they want clean air and they want clean water, but the Earth's environment is the way it is because life has changed it and life maintains it with these conditions. If we do a little comparative analysis between Earth and our nearest planets that formed at the same time, out of the same stuff, and that would be Venus and Mars, you know, we've got liquid water on the planet, that's a big difference. And that has certainly changed our atmosphere, because carbon dioxide dissolves in water, as we mentioned. So whereas Venus and Mars have atmospheres that are 95% carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide is only 400 parts per million in our atmosphere. But our atmosphere contains oxygen, too and Mars and Venus don't have any oxygen in their atmosphere, or trace amounts far less than one percent. How come the Earth has oxygen? That's just because of photosynthetic organisms. It's just because there are photosynthetic bacteria, and there are algae, and there are plants that break water and release oxygen as a waste product, that we have a planet where 21% by volume of our atmosphere is oxygen. And the reason that we have clean water and clean air is that these substances are filtering through extraordinarily complex living ecosystems. So, when someone says they want to save the environment, I, I applaud them. And then I say, let me suggest how to do that. And the way to do that is to protect the living world. To protect this extraordinary gift that we have here in this little corner of the sterile universe. Now the earth is the only planet that we know of absolutely that we know of that has life and so it's a really special place and that life has made the earth different and creates these conditions, these environmental conditions that we have evolved to tolerate and uh, it makes me think of an important Uh, analogy that uh, Aldo Leopold, a very famous conservation biologist who wrote a book a Sand County Almanac made. The quote is, tinkerer saves all the pieces. You know, we are tinkering with nature. We're taking it apart. And ecology is a very young discipline. In in fact, ecology is such a young discipline that you wanted me to define it. because most of your audience might not actually have an explicit understanding of what ecology is as a science. That's how young it is. We don't know how all of these species function in the environment. We do know that some of them have shown themselves to be disproportionately important in maintaining the diversity within a system we call those keystone species. That sharks, for instance, by consuming fish, reduce the abundances of those prey species so no one prey species can outcompete the others, and thus all the fish are able to survive within the environment. But you wipe out the sharks, and then the most dominant fish species outcompetes the others, and the diversity in the system crashes. There are, of course, Numerous examples in other systems as well, but we haven't examined all the species on the planet yet. We don't even know how many there are and for most of them we've just given them a scientific name and there's a specimen in a drawer. We don't actually know their biology and how they fit in. So Leopold presents the analogy of a tinkerer. You know, if you're going to take your toaster apart and you want to have any hope of putting it back together again so it works, you need to save all the pieces. Some of them might be superfluous. You know, maybe the little handle on the lever that pushes the slots down. Well, you don't need a cap on there. You could just push the lever down itself. So maybe the cap is not really that critical. But other things are gonna be really critical. The heating elements in the toaster are really critical. But what we're doing to nature is we're taking it apart and we don't have any idea which pieces are really important and which are superfluous. There probably are lots of species that, well, if we lose them, it's not going to cripple how the system works. But we don't know which ones those are. And so if we're to have any hope of maintaining the functioning of these complex systems, we got to take the first step and at least keep all the pieces. You know, you made a comment before that uh, you went to the reef with your family recently, and there were still parts that were really beautiful. And, you know, that highlights the resiliency of nature. You know, we've we've seen during these last 10 months when humanity has been, you know, huddled in our homes and we've reduced CO2 production and we're not visiting the national parks as much, animals are taking these spaces back. Plants will take places back. David Attenborough's latest video, A Life on Our Planet, tells his tale of how he's seen the planet change over the 90 years of his life. And, you know, 85% of the story is really depressing. But at the end, his message is, you know, he visits Chernobyl and there's no people living in Chernobyl, but the plants are growing up through the sidewalk. You know, it's it's a typical kind of post-apocalyptic vision of nature taking back the land. Nature can do that. If we give it a chance, you know, in in today's parlance, if we just take our knee off its neck, it will survive and can come back and thrive. But we have to give it a chance. We have to give it a chance. And uh, so I think that's kind of the most important take home message is let's give nature a chance.
1: Wade, thank you so much listening to you you make me feel very proud to be a Furman university alum so thank you for your time we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the blue earth
0: podcast if you'd like to see more you can check us out at futurefrogman.org and you can find us at futurefrogman on social media we release episodes every week so until next time remember anyone can be an ocean ambassador thank you Why do living things live where they do? Why is a, does a particular species have this particular distribution and live in this particular place? And Right now, we're experiencing another mass extinction event, and the way we know that is that the rate of extinction is a thousand times higher than that background rate. We are actually using 50 percent of the fresh water on our planet. We're controlling it. Well, gee, the ocean is just so vast that we can just dump our waste into this limitless volume of water and it'll become so dilute that it won't be toxic anymore. Unfortunately, people look at rivers the same way. What is it about insects? that has encouraged their speciation, has caused them to break up into so many different kinds of species.